there is something to be said about an unlikable hero. Though, to be completely honest with you, I don't think the term makes a whole lot of sense. What exactly is an unlikable hero? If you hate the guy, he isn't much of a hero. He's just a dude. In the romance novel sense, anyway. That quibble aside, I really do like an awful hero every now and again. I like the angst they come with. The arc required to make him worth a damn in the end. The fine art of making an asshole deserving of a happily ever after takes skill and much authorly finesse. This usually involves a lot of mistakes, hits to the head, real and metaphorical, and copious groveling, which happens to be my favorite part. In other words, I love picking up a book and getting sucked into a story of a man getting his spine broken by love. I want to watch him change. I want to watch him learn. I want to watch him evolve into something better, kinder. Don't get me wrong. I still want him to be an asshole. I just want him to be a slightly nicer asshole who knows how to communicate his feelings. Believe it or not, if anybody embodies this character journey, it is Gilgamesh. Hi and welcome to the Kingdom of Thirst podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly and this is the second part of our Gilgamesh miniseries. In the first episode, we broke down the history behind the world's first epic and why you, romance reader, should care about it. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the titular character, Gilgamesh himself. To put it bluntly, this guy blows. Like, he super duper sucks, y'all. That's kind of the whole point of the epic of Gilgamesh. and why it is upheld as the archetypal hero's journey. Our wily king starts out as a 17 feet tall, bride-stealing, murdering, marauding jackass. And yes, I did say 17 feet tall. All you giant monster fuckers out there, come get y'all's juice. This man is said to have nine foot long legs and a chest that spans six feet from nipple to nipple. I, I, that's a, that's a real measurement. Six feet from nipple to nipple. That's not even accounting for the added width of his shoulders. Absolutely unhinged shit over here, folks. I know that we in the romance novel world have a lot of unpacking to do around the idea of toxic masculinity and the ideal body type. See, big body equals hero's whole personality. But holy smokes, Gilgamesh really does take the big hero cake. If we're talking standards of beauty here, by the way, I guess I should mention what the Sumerian ideal would have been. We don't have any confirmed statues of Gilgamesh himself, that I can find at least. Please tell me if you know one, please. But there are a handful we think might be him, or at least they are clearly heroes, and therefore can tell us a lot about how the Sumerians wish to be depicted and seen throughout time. You know, because statues are supposed to last forever. One of the statues that might be Gilgamesh includes the one found in Sargon II's palace, now in the Louvre, of a hero happily holding a snarling lion in his arm like a toddler clutching a pissed-off cat. 
using the many, many statues and the reliefs the Mesopotamians left us, as well as the hints of hygiene and grooming practices we get in writing and letters and all sorts of things, here's a breakdown of how the original storytellers might have imagined him. He would have been broad-shouldered, with long, curled hair, perhaps oiled and decorated with ornaments of glass and gold and precious stones, and a thick, groomed beard. It's hard to tell what's simply artistic style and what is accurate to life, but both beard and hair might have been braided and beaded. He'd be bare-chested, too, and heavily adorned with collars of gold and jeweled armbands. He'd wear a kilt, similarly styled with heavy embroidery tassels and more gold, always gold, and a crown of lapis lazuli would sit on his heavy brow. If he was feeling extra fancy, he might throw on a drape of fine linen over his brawny chest, pleated and embroidered to perfection. Pop some bedazzled sandals on that boy and you've got yourself a Sumerian sex pot. Hot, right? So Gilgamesh is literally larger than life. He's gorgeous, considered the most beautiful man in the world, and he acts completely without consequence. He can do whatever he pleases because he is the greatest man who walks the earth. Famously, his story begins with the line, He had seen everything, had experienced all emotion, from exaltation to despair. He is the wisest man, the most powerful man, the most handsome, the most cruel, the most loving. He is simply the most. When I first read Gilgamesh, I was surprised by this. Not, I guess, by the fact that he was awful, because, yeah. But, but rather that this is where the story begins. While there is a brief and gorgeously wrought prologue that draws us into the story, it is here, when Gilgamesh is at his biggest and baddest, literally, that we start the tale. I think we're used to a more rags-to-riches sort of hero's journey these days. To make a character more likable, we are often introduced to them when they are, say, the farm boys with a destiny. Their futures limbed in greatness and tragedy in equal measure. They're skywalkering it up, you know? When they make mistakes or when they lose everything, we are already on their side. We watch them go from nothing to something, and we want to watch them rise to that promised greatness by the end of the story. We want them to get that uncomplicated H-E-A. So, do we meet Gilgamesh as a sweet-faced infant in his goddess mother's arms? Nah. Do we get our first glimpse of him as a boy, learning to ride a horse or picking up a sword for the first time? Nope. Do we even get a hint of the human underneath the armor of his legacy before we get kicked in the shins by his bad behavior? No, we do not! When the story opens, this guy is awful. His people, who love him, who worship him even, are crying for the gods to help them with such vigor that they are actually forced to answer. Think about that for a second. 
there have always been bad men, and even worse kings. Men with power have been the same since the very first one walked out of the primordial ooze. Our friend Gorby the Great probably wasn't the most stellar guy. You have to be a special sort of creature to thank <clears throat> hey now, I ought to wear a big hat and let people bow to me. <sighs> As we know, all rich men are bad, and all people born into monarchy are worse. This isn't new. So, in light of the grand history of big, hat-wearing assholes, how bad does a dude have to be to make his neighbor's complaints a god's problem? <laughs> Turns out... See, our bearded boy, our grand idiot, our lad Gil, was just the pits, y'all. When we meet him, he is beloved by his people, and yet he is the terror that stalks them day in and day out. Their lives are hell because this 17 feet tall, 6 foot from nipple to nipple menace just won't leave them alone. From Stephen Mitchell's Gilgamesh. The city is his possession. He struts through it, arrogant, his head raised high, trampling its citizens like a wild bull. He is king. He does whatever he wants. Takes the son from his father and crushes him. Takes the girl from her mother and uses her. The warrior's daughter, the young man's bride, he uses her. No one dares to oppose him. Translation. He walks around with his nine-foot-long legs, crushing normies under his huge feet, has sex with whoever he wants 24-7, and parties slash wrestles with the men of his city so hard that they are basically useless meat goo by the time he's finished with them. Interestingly, the tone of the complaints does not imply that the acts are inherently wrong but that Gilgamesh does them to such an excess that his people simply can't cope. Things are so dire that their cries threaten, quote, to overwhelm heaven. So, how did he get this way? <laughs> Easy, this dude has never had a reality check, and he is quite literally too big for his britches. While I don't have a lot of sympathy for Gilgamesh at the beginning of his story, I get how he turned out so bad. The son of a great king and the goddess Ninsun, he is described as being the perfect man. In fact, the first several stanzas of the epic go to great lengths to tell you how gosh darn incredible he is. Amongst the many legendary deeds listed is this choice phrase, which goes a long way toward explaining just how Gilgamesh got so very out of control. Who is like Gilgamesh? What other king has inspired such awe? Who else can say, I alone rule, supreme among mankind? The goddess Aruru, mother of creation, had designed his body had made him the strongest of men, huge, handsome, radiant, perfect. Huge, handsome, radiant, perfect. That's one hell of a hero, right? Now, 
Imagine hearing that every day from the moment of your divine birth. Imagine walking among people who kiss your feet as you pass them in the street. Imagine coming to manhood in the world's first grand city, where men would thrust their beautiful daughters in your path and wealth hitherto unknown to humanity was your birthright. Imagine being Sumerian, part of a culture that gloried in its ancient past and knowledge and being known as the wisest of all men who came before you. Imagine knowing that your mother is a goddess and your father a king and your destiny divine. How do you think you would turn out? So he's unlikable. He's maybe one of the most unlikable heroes in the history of literature. He's a spoiled rich boy the size of a house with an unhealthy love for murder and sex and partying. And that, friends, is just the start. Here's the weird thing about this hero story. Gilgamesh, as a man, at his core, doesn't actually change that much over the course of the story. He is brash and arrogant and uses his fists far, far more than his head. While the grand history of both Sumerian and Assyrian, the empire that would emerge out of the fall of the Sumerian elite, you know this, prided itself on its scholarly kings, our boy Gil is, to put it bluntly, a fucking idiot. Seriously, he's dumb as a box of rocks. That huge, beautiful head. Empty. Nothing. I've heard tell that if you yell into one of Gil's ears, your voice comes out the other side like one of those funky plastic microphones for kids. There's nothing in there but horny vibes and violence. I mean, it's not not hot, but it is bad for, say, ruling an ancient and illustrious city-state. Unsurprisingly, we don't get much on Gilgamesh as a ruler during the story itself. He was clearly too busy fucking his way through everyone's brides and throwing ragers to file all that kingly clay work. What we know is that his people love and fear him. In one breath, they extol his virtues. In the next, they plead with the capricious gods to save them from his tyranny. They love him, clearly, and this is probably why they didn't ask for someone to come down off a mountain and bash him over the head. They don't want to depose their king, who is placed on the throne by the divine, and they don't dispute his right to the women he pursues, nor the men he bests in endless wrestling matches, but they need help, and fast. What Gilgamesh needs is to be taught a lesson. the hero's journey exactly if you're a writer of any stripe or even someone who casually enjoys literature you probably know what it is already for those of you who don't here's a simple breakdown for you a hero sets out on a quest struggles valiantly with said quest accomplishes his goal and returns home having learned a valuable lesson Sometimes that lesson is, don't fuck around with hubris. Sometimes it's, knowledge is dangerous, but so is ignorance. 
Sometimes it's, don't sleep with the witch, you lump. In essence, leave, learn, win, return. This is, on its face, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Our man starts off bad and in desperate need of a reality check. The gods are like, he's pretty big, so maybe we don't deal with him personally, but we send somebody else to do it for us? So they do this, and Enkidu is created, and they fall in love after beating the shit out of one another, as you do, and then the world's sloppiest boyfriends go on a quest that ends in disaster. Many lessons are learned, the most commonly cited being that all beings must die, and that the only hope for any of us is to live well and love without reservation, and also never leave weird plants where snakes can snatch them. You know, normal shit. It's a hero's journey, sure. But if you thought, hey, Abigail, that sounds uh, a bit more complicated than leave, learn, win, return, then you're right. It is more complicated than that. And you already know why. It's a love story. Absolutely none of Gilgamesh's growth, such as it is, would be possible without his relationship with Enkidu. The first 60-ish percent of the epic isn't even the actual journey. It's all Gilgamesh and Enkidu being sexy little scamps. If we break the story into two parts, with that first 60% standing on its own, it matches the beats of what we would consider a romance novel with startling precision. For the sake of simplicity, let's say that this story is 10 chapters long, okay? We meet our unlikable hero in chapter one. We meet our much more likable hero in chapter two. They have their explosive meet cute in chapter four. By chapter five, they are smitten. Chapter six sees them set out on an adventure together. It doesn't go great, but by chapter seven, they are more or less married, only to have their relationship threatened by a woman who wants Gilgamesh for herself. Chapter eight sees them thwart this dastardly interloper through the power of love, axes, and big, muscly arms. Unfortunately, the wheels of the Romasava cart fall off in chapter 10. I warned you that their love story doesn't have a happy ending, so it shouldn't surprise you to hear that Instead of the HEA we crave, chapter 10 delivers us a crushing blow. The death of our sweet, equally boneheaded Enkidu. While this huge chunk of the story could be considered a part of the hero's journey, I disagree. See, that requires that Gilgamesh actually learn something. So while he and Enkidu do set out on a quest, and they do win their various and ill-advised battles, neither man learns a damn thing from it. They are so wrapped up in each other that they don't question why they do things, or what consequences might befall them for those choices. See, the vital part of the hero's journey is not the quest. It is the lesson learned while on the quest. The goal is, to put it simply, wisdom, not glory. 
So in light of the fact that most of the story is not a hero's journey, what can we call the Epic of Gilgamesh other than a love story? Seriously, I can't think of what else it would be. A tragedy is perhaps the second best choice. Even the actual journey part of the story is essentially a dense epilogue meant to show exactly how out of his mind with grief Gilgamesh becomes when he loses his soulmate. The fact that he returns to Uruk after his quest to conquer death and process his incalculable loss, a better king than when he left, is incidental. It's barely acknowledged. Gilgamesh's character is fundamentally altered not by going out into the wilderness to learn a lesson, but by the love he's shared with Enkidu. So why should you care about Gilgamesh the man? If he starts out awful and is only changed because of the death of his soulmate, why should you give a shit about his character? I think we've all read a romance novel or two where the sole redeeming feature of the hero is that he wants to bone his love interest more than anybody else. If you're like me, then that doesn't sell you. A hero has to be more than that. He can make mistakes. He can even be awful. But he has to have something in him that makes you say, okay, I guess you can stay. What about Gilgamesh works? For me, it is his absolutely off-the-scale charisma. Without it, he is just a monster who happens to get lucky enough to meet his soulmate. With it, he's a charismatic monster lucky enough to meet his soulmate. What's interesting to me is that through the distortion of time and the loss of so much information, we don't have all that much context for the accomplishments of our boy Gil. Perhaps his laundry list of deeds would have been enough to sway a reader 6,000 years ago in his favor. But modern readers, particularly laymen like me, don't have any context for those accomplishments. They have no meaning. What does it matter to us that he built a wall? Who cares that he brought back ancient rites? Where the fuck even is the cedar forest, and why should I care? We don't have enough information to feel like these things matter. To us, they are just words, not shorthand for a legacy any average citizen of the time might have known. And yet, Gilgamesh is glorious. His personality, his joy, his follies, his voracious, almost childlike love for life and its pleasures make him reluctantly endearing. Excuse the wordplay here, but everything he does is huge. He experiences the world with an almost palpable relish and ignorance. He doesn't know pain, nor heartbreak, nor death. Like a little boy in a 17-foot-tall, 6-foot-wide-from-nipple-to-nipple mech suit, he has no idea that what he does is wrong, or that darkness looms on the horizon. To me, his redemption 
does not simply lie in his love for Enkidu, but his love for life on the whole. Let me remind you of why his people sought the help of the gods in the first place. It was not because they wanted a new ruler, or that Gilgamesh was doing things outside of his station. They accept his position as divinely ordained, and we see later that no one, at least within earshot of our narrator, has a problem with his behavior on an individual scale. Gilgamesh is a god and a king and a man. Of course he's allowed to deflower your bride with his four-foot-long wang, Mr. Soldier. Obviously, he's supposed to party too. The gods deserve libations, don't they? The issue is his excess. It is in his rampant disregard for everything else in pursuit of life's pleasures, and this includes violence, of course, since we are talking about a Sumerian here, that his people suffer. It is Gilgamesh's untempered lusts that rains so much hell on his people. He's never been told no. Now, I'm not saying he's blameless. He is a grown-ass man of indeterminate age. He should at least have some empathy for the people he's terrorizing. He sucks. But he's also annoyingly charming. And almost guileless, if that makes any sense. Disarming in a way you probably wouldn't expect. He's huge and radiant and beautiful and strong and vulnerable. I think it's worth remembering here, too, that this story is not written in prose. We are not getting in-depth storytelling here, folks. Poetry is evocative. It's lyrical. It is even descriptive. It is not, however, detailed. If you are unfamiliar with poetry, which a lot of us are, myself included, frankly, think of each line of a poem as a rung on a ladder. You are trying to get to the top. Unlike prose, which for the purposes of this metaphor, let's call a staircase, poetry provides maximum impact with the fewest possible concessions for your comfort. It gives you just enough to get you where you need to be, but relies on you to do all the work. You pull yourself up, hand over hand, foot over foot, rung over rung, to get to the conclusion the author has painstakingly laid out for you. Prose, on the other hand, requires far less work on your part. In an ideal scenario, it provides perfectly measured steps and a handrail, Sure, you may be huffing and puffing by the time you get to the top, but compared to a perilous ladder, it's basically all easy street. An epic poem pulls no punches. It provides no extraneous information. Not a single word can be missed. There's no fat on these bones, folks. If the epic of Gilgamesh was a novel, we would get all that context. We would get inner monologues. We would get a micro look at every expression, choice, and inflection. We'd know exactly why our characters are the way they are and why they're worth caring about. 
the epic doesn't give us those things. There are huge, tantalizing gaps in the story. There are lines that clearly call on the reader to have invaluable cultural context and memory that we simply do not have. We don't know why Gilgamesh is so gung-ho about going on that ill-fated quest with Enkidu to the Cedar Forest. We don't know what happens to Shamat, the priestess who teaches Enkidu the art of sexuality for seven straight days, though she is so vital to the entire story. We don't even know how our heroes spent their days after their fateful wrestling match. Did weeks pass? Years? Decades? Just how long did Gil and Enkidu get to love one another before disaster? We don't know. All we get is a single, tantalizing line. Time passed quickly. We are left staring into the spaces between stanzas, wondering, wishing we could peer back in time as easily as we can make out the dots of ink that form the letters on the page. And yet, despite the spare nature of the format, Gilgamesh's personality, his desire, and his desperation leap off of the page. Despite our cultural distance and the vast swath of time between us and them, you know him. That is the trick with any love story, isn't it? The magic of every good romance is the knowing. If you don't know the characters, how can you care about them? And if you don't care about them, then why should their love matter to you? This is one of the main differences between romance and erotica, romance and literary fiction, romance and all other storytelling traditions, I think. In every other genre, you don't have to care about the characters. As long as the story is compelling, the action intense, the drama gasp-worthy, it really doesn't matter if you give a shit about the people on the page. In romance, it's essential. You have to care that they find love, that they get their happy ending. That's why people get so upset when they feel they have been tricked into reading something that has been advertised as a romance novel, but really isn't. Readers go into a book with trust, knowing that it is safe to care about these people, to give them their heart for the time it takes to reach the back matter. And when that trust is violated, it doesn't just gall, it hurts you care. By the end of Gilgamesh, you care about him. You do. I know that sounds impossible considering where we started and the fact that he really doesn't change until Aikido's passing, but it's true. You care because you know how ignorant he is. You know how much he has to learn and how much pain he will endure. You care because he loves with so much brazen enthusiasm that it's impossible not to. His adoration for Enkidu and Enkidu's worship of him in turn make it impossible to hate him, even when he makes inexplicable, often cruel choices that we readers know will end in disaster. I really hope 
he existed. I hope that Gilgamesh lived and he loved a man named Enkidu with everything he had for as long as fate allowed him to. Perhaps their time together was short, but if it was real, then the legacy of that love has endured longer than almost any other story in human history. For 6,000 years, defying all the odds of time and disaster, the love between Gilgamesh and Enkidu has echoed like a shout in the dark. In his grief, Gilgamesh sought the secret of immortality. In his love, he found it. Not too shabby, right? Thank you for listening to the second episode in our Gilgamesh mini-series. You can find all the resources I've used for research listed in the show notes. If you'd like to check out more of my work, you can also find the links to my books in the notes. My newest book, Empire, featuring a retired vampire assassin and his delicious gardener, releases January 10th and is up for pre-order now. Check it out if you like. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we'll talk about Gilgamesh's other half, his actual soulmate, his born sexy yesterday wild man, Enkidu. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.